0: Well, 15 years, you know, just uh, think about that for a second, 15 years. Doesn't seem like uh, a very big number, especially if you've uh, been married 30, 40, 50 years, if you've got kids that are 15, Uh, but I tell you 15 years is a long time. Uh, When I first went into church planting, I remember one of the statistics that um, I heard was that uh, in a church planting environment, um, when a church starts, it has a 15% survival rate of making it past five years. And so uh, 85% of churches that get started uh, in the U.S. fail. And so uh, it was a pretty daunting um, statistic for me. And so um, that was just something that uh, just kind of always resonated in, back in my mind. And so to say that you've been here for 15 years is just an amazing work of God. You know, it's interesting when you think about being the founding pastor. It's, uh, there's nothing founding about it. You know, it's all <laughs> God, and it is nothing short of a miracle. Every church is a miracle of God. It's a work of God, and it's dependent on God and His Spirit. And uh, 15 years is just a major, major milestone. And it's uh, really fun for me to be able to be here and just to look back and see what God has continued to do um, through the leadership here at Meadowland. And I am really looking forward to what God um, has for you as you move forward. I think Steve's right. I think the best is yet uh, to come. I think that's true in all of our churches as we work to continue to reach our communities for Christ and be all that God has for us, individually and collectively, um, as the body of Christ. I moved to uh, Illinois in 1995. I had uh, four kids. I was with Baxter Healthcare Corporation uh, prior to ministry. Uh, when I got married to my wife, uh, she asked. She was a believer. She had a relationship with Christ, and she asked me if I did, and I said, yeah. I thought I went to church. I, was, you know, I believed in God. I thought I was a good person, and uh, so I think she kind of questioned it. Um, it was interesting because after I went into ministry, I called the pastor back that married us. Hey, just want to let you know I'm in ministry now. And he goes, he didn't remember who we were. And I said, well, you know, Carolyn Hatwig, you know, you married us, you know, I was 20 years ago. And he goes, you guys still married? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, was there a doubt? And you married us anyway? <laughs> so we moved to uh, Illinois in 1995. And, you know, it's funny. Uh, we moved around a lot with Baxter. I was an executive uh, for the 15 years. And so... Um, I started out at the University of Oklahoma, which is where I met my wife. Uh, I took a job down in uh, Texas. We moved out to California, back to Texas. So we moved around a lot. I've moved probably uh, about an average of what, every one, two years. Uh, my wife and I figured up um, just about a month ago. We figured out between the two, weeks, we've been in 22 homes, uh, 10 of them since we've been uh, married. So we moved a lot. And uh, when we moved up to Illinois, the plan was to be here for one year. I don't. I I, I try not to you know, bash Illinois, I just, you know, I, I've come to love it. I've been here 20 years now. So uh, God's a sense of humor. But for that first year, um, in fact, my mail, I got a uh, my tags for my car came forwarded, my Texas tags. I renewed my Texas tags because I was going back to Texas. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be here for a year. I came up with Baxter to do some work at their corporate offices and was just going to shoot back out. And, uh, you know, the funny thing was, is, uh, you know, when I moved up to Illinois, my uh, my marriage was, uh, really, a train wreck at the time. I had been working on my career. I had the four kids. Um, I had been hanging around with some guys. Uh, partying was kind of a lifestyle. Uh, after work, I typically would not go home first. Would typically stop, go to some clubs, and and uh, so working on my career and hanging out with these uh, career builders, and I just found myself uh, kind of estranged from my wife. Uh, when we moved up to Illinois, it was kind of an opportunity for me to take a fresh start. So it was really an opportunity for me to kind of reassess. Uh, you know, my life, I was, you know, getting into my 30s now. I had an early middle age crisis, I don't know. So I started reevaluating my life. I was trying to talk with my wife about how to work on it. And she was like, look, you've already screwed up. You know, we're done. And so, um, interestingly enough, uh, as I just was kind of processing through uh, our relationship, there was a church right across the street from our house. And it was uh, a Faith Church in Grays Lake. It's a, uh, also a conference church. It's where I made a faith commitment, I came to faith, in faith. And so, But they had an 8.15 service in the morning. And so I thought, you know, this is great. I can go in at 8 8 o'clock in the morning. I can get church out of the way. And uh, then I can come home. I can mow the grass, play with the kids, and drink my beer and have a good day. (laughs) So I'd go to church at 8 o'clock, you know, get it out of the way. And uh, after about the third week uh, in, um, the pastor was going through a series on what it means to be a Christ follower. And week one, I was like, wow, that's what a Christian is. You know, week two, oh, that's what a Christian is. Week three, Wow, that's interesting. I didn't, that's what a Christian was. We got through the end of this series, and uh, I realized that I did not have a relationship with Christ. And, um, and during that time, I had connected with some other guys that were working at Baxter there. I got involved in a men's small group and uh, started uh, hanging out with them. And, and I ended up making a faith commitment um, not too long after uh, we were attending faith. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a life-transforming uh, experience for me. My relationship with Christ changed my life. Um, it changed my marriage, it changed my relationship with my kids, and it uh, really laid the foundation for what God would continue to do uh, in and through me over the next, you know, now 20 years, and what I'm looking forward to. I know the best is yet to come uh, in my life as well, as well as the church. And uh, But, you know, it was really interesting to think about, you know, at that time, just all the confusion I had about what a relationship with Christ was and what it meant to be a Christian. And so I wanted to share with you this morning a passage that was uh, really uh, key Uh, for me, and understanding the difference between believing in God, uh, the difference in uh, just going to church, and what it means to have a relationship with God. Uh, The passage that kind of really changed my life comes from Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, there's a story about a guy named um, Cornelius. And Cornelius was uh, uh, a leader. Uh, He was uh, well-known. And uh, when I was reading down through uh, Acts chapter 10, we got to chapter 10 in this men's group, And uh, we got to chapter 10, I thought, you know, Cornelius is the kind of guy that I would want to be. And so in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, uh, it says this, and the passage is on the screen. You can read it if you didn't bring your Bible. It says this, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout. They were God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. And so Cornelius, for all practical purpose, is really uh, a strong leader. And so when you look through this verse, there's a couple of things that you notice about Cornelius. Um, he was uh, a centurion in what was known as uh, the Italian uh, cohort, uh, Italian regiment. Does anybody know what a centurion is? Uh, if you look through Roman history, a centurion was typically a part of the Roman military. Um, they were high-ranking officials in the uh, in the Roman military, and uh, a centurion would have been in charge of a century or a thousand men. And so, uh, Cornelius was in charge of one thousand people, uh, one thousand guys in this huge army. The Italian regiment was typically uh, the archers, and so uh, Cornelius was a really strong leader. Have any of you ever seen the movie Braveheart? Uh, Braveheart, Mill Gibson. Uh, Uh, Well, they're getting ready to go into battle. He's running up and down on his horse and he's clanking the swords of all the soldiers and he's ratcheting them up and he's going, no, he just, he rallies up the troops. And that's the kind of leader that Cornelius was. He was a very strong leader in a very large part of the Roman army. He was well respected um, as a leader. He and his family were devout. They were God-fearing. They gave generously uh, to those in need and they prayed to God regularly. And so if you were going to summarize some of the characteristics of Cornelius' life. Now, what would you say, or how would you describe who Cornelius was? Just looking at this passage. There's four of them, and on this next slide you'll be able to see some of them. You know, he was a very well-respected leader. So Cornelius was a leader. Um, the men knew him. He was respected. He had a lot of responsibility. Um, he sought after and revered God. And uh, he was generous. You know, he gave to anyone that had need. He was a man of prayer. He feared God and he prayed routinely. Well, continuing on in Acts chapter 10, verse 3, it says, there was one day that Cornelius had gone out to pray, and he had a vision. And he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius said, what is it? The angel said, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering to me. I've heard them. I want you to send a Joppa. I want you to bring a man back named Simon, uh, Simon Peter. Um, he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoke to him and he had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants. One of them was a devout soldier who was with him as one of his attendants. And he told them everything that had happened to him in Joppa. He told them about the vision. And so Cornelius has his vision and he, you know, uh, God says, I want you to send to Joppa. I want you to have Peter brought to you. And so Peter's got some words that he wants you to say. And so Cornelius sends the guy off uh, to Joppa to go get Peter. Interestingly enough, as you continue to read uh, through this passage in Acts chapter 10, Peter is actually in Caesarea, and Peter also has a dream. In verse 9, it says this, about noon the following day. uh, These guys were on the journey. They approached the city. Peter was on the roof of his house to pray. And Peter, at the same time that Cornelius is having a dream to go send to Peter, Peter's having a vision that somebody's going to come get him, that he needs to go to the town of Caesarea. And so both men independently have this dream. God wants them to come together. And so, um, and Peter's got some words that he wants to share with Cornelius that are really uh, important. And so both men have this dream. The next day, Peter starts out of the journey with the guys. The guys got out to, uh, to Joppa. So they start you know heading back to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. He called his relatives close together. And so anyway, these two guys end up meeting. And so Peter shows up, Cornelius' house. Yeah, hey, we had a dream together. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So they start talking about their dream. And, and so, uh, so Cornelius is sitting there saying, oh, I'm not sure why you're here, but uh, you know, I had this vision. And wow, it's really interesting that you had a vision too. So you know, what do you got for me? And so Peter shares with him. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know exactly uh, why I'm here, but let me tell you this. He said, I am a witness of everything that Jesus did in the county of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but the witnesses that God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him and and rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that Jesus is the one whom God appointed to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And so here you have Cornelius, who is a God-fearing man, prays continually, goes to church. You know, for all practical purposes, if you looked around, you'd say, man, that is the kind of guy that I'd want to be. And so God gives him this vision and Peter comes to him and tells him about who Jesus is. And that was the message that Peter uh, had for Cornelius. And so the interesting part about that is is why they're listening to the story. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They all come to place their faith in Christ and they all become Christians. And so Peter goes back and he goes to tell the uh, the other believers uh, back in Caesarea what happens. And Peter says this in verse uh, uh, 13 of chapter 11. Peter says that Cornelius had told us about a dream that he had had, that an angel was going to appear to his house and say, send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, and he's going to bring you a message through which you and your whole household will be saved. The interesting thing about Cornelius' story is is there's a God-fearing guy who, from all practical purposes, is somebody that we would all want to be, but who is not saved until he hears about this message from Peter. And so as you think about this next passage, you know, Peter was, uh, had a message for Cornelius that Cornelius needed to hear. Cornelius was not saved, but then he became saved after he heard the message from Peter. Now, for me, having grown up in the church and having thought that I was a, a pretty good guy, um, this passage was, was kind of life-transforming. Because uh, I looked at Cornelius as a guy that I would have thought would have been a a good guy, right? Leader, prayed, gave to people. And I mean, just for the most practical purposes, was just somebody I would want to be. But there was something missing in his life. He wasn't saved. He wasn't saved until he heard this message that Peter had for him about who Christ was. And that message was really something that kind of resonated with me. And so in our little study with these four guys, they all started asking me, well, are you saved? Has anybody ever asked you, are you saved? Have you ever asked anybody else, are you saved? Saved from what? I mean, what does it mean to be saved? And so people kept asking me, well, are you saved? I was like, well, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I was a good guy. I mean, what does it mean to be saved? That's something that kind of gets thrown around in churches. You know, somebody asks you, are you saved? You well, know, what do you say? I don't know. I think so. For me, it was, I thought so. And so in my own little Bible study and these men Uh, just 21 years ago, I came to understand that there's a difference between going to church and being a good person and giving money and helping people in need and praying to God and being saved. And that changed my life. And so I came to understand my need for a relationship with Christ. You know, we all need to be saved. And in our culture, in our community, and and, uh, in all of our church plants, we want to help people to understand how to have a relationship with Christ. What's funny is, is in any church, not just this church, but you go into any church, if you ask people about why they go to church, it's, well, it just seems like a good thing to do. You know, it just seems like, well, you know, sometimes it's like, for me, it was like, well, my wife told me I need to be here. You know, for me, when our kids were sick, it was like, whew, didn't have to go. You know, so I went to church because my wife kind of encouraged us to go. Um, I had some kids that started asking questions about God and the Bible, I thought, wow, I have no idea. So let's go to church so we can figure this out. And so what does it mean to be saved? Why do people go to church? Well, church is about people who have a relationship with Christ. They come to worship God and they hear his word proclaimed and to encourage each other and grow. We are the body of Christ. And uh, the church originally was an assembly of believers. It was an ecclesia. It was an assembly of people that had a relationship with Christ that encouraged one another in the faith. That all had relationships with Christ. And somewhere along the line, church has become something more of a social organization. It's a good place to go. Uh, if you're a leader in the community, as a leader in the community, I thought, well, I'll go to church. It's a good place to you know, show face. You know, Everybody, I'm a good guy. So much confusion about what church is today uh, that you very rarely will walk into a church that will have you talking about, well, how do you have a relationship with Christ? And that's so important. It's one of the things that's foundational uh, for this church at Meadowland. It's one of the things that... that uh, that Steve just bleeds is wanting to know and help others know more about who Jesus Christ is. There's a difference between going to church and having a relationship with Christ. But it's all about this issue of being saved. And sometimes I think we throw that word around, being saved. And for me, um, it took me a while to kind of grapple with you know, what it meant to be saved. You know, It's all about a, It's a sin issue. In uh, verse Isaiah, in this next passage, Isaiah 59, it says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Uh, he does not hear you. And so sin is something that separates us uh, from God. And sin is one of those relative terms today because for me, I always felt like, well, I'm not as bad as the next guy. Um, sin is one of those things that can be difficult to talk about. Um, but the reality is, is God's perfect and we're not. And it's that sin that separates us uh, from God. You know, I came in this morning and I was shaking hands and uh, there's a... There was a uh, uh, soap dispenser, hand sanitizer by the front door. And so it's all, <coughs> oh, pardon me, sorry. Hey, good morning, how are you doing this morning? Oh, good for you, man, I'll get you the back side. You want to shake my hand? Yeah, you want to shake my hand? Yeah, I kind of, my hand looks clean, doesn't it? There's nothing on my hand. So what's funny is, is if you hadn't seen me do that, it's always funny because in church, when I'm in the men's restroom, sometimes you hear somebody walk out and you think, they didn't wash their hands. (laughs) You never know who's washed their hands. And so you come in in the morning and, you know, you're shaking hands with people. It's like, you don't know where that hand's been. know, sin is like that. You can't see it. It's not very visible. And the funny part is, is, you know, unless you talk about it, unless you see something, you don't even know it's there. And that's what sin is like. Sin is something that is something that typically um, is in our lives that people don't talk about. You typically don't see. Now, we all know people that are bad. We can all characterize. You know, if I ask you, who, who's the worst person you can think of? How, does anybody think of Hitler? Anybody not think of Hitler? What's somebody else that's not Hitler? Who's somebody thinking of that's really bad? What is it? Yeah, Saddam Hussein. So that's a good one. So it used to be Hitler. Now there's all kinds of people that would just pop right into your mind. When you think of somebody that's bad, that you can say, wow, that is a bad person. But when when you think about yourself, you know, would you characterize yourself as a bad person? You know, from God's perspective, we're all bad. You know, sin is a result of the human condition. Adam and Eve were in the garden and uh, they blew it with that tree. They shouldn't have eaten from the fruit of the garden. And sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, through their disobedience. And so we have all inherited that sin. Sin is something that's a result of being human. It's not just behavior. It's a result of being human. Every single person that has ever been born has a sin condition. And sometimes it can be difficult to talk about because we only think of sin as behavioral. And we think of when you start talking about sin, it's like, well, I'm not as bad as that person. And that was something that I always did. I always compared myself to other people. I wasn't as bad as Tony was. I wasn't as bad as Osama was. And so I always felt like I was okay with God because I was a good person like Cornelius. But the reality was is that I wasn't saved until I came to understand my need for a relationship with Christ. Sin is a condition that separates us all from God. We all need a relationship with Christ. And so Isaiah is talking about the fact that it's our sin that separates us from God. So if God seems distant to you. God was distant for me. I just if Somebody had asked me about God or had a relationship with Christ. My eyes just kind of glazed over. In fact, I was really comfortable talking about God. It was when somebody started talking about Jesus Christ, that I started freaking out because, you know, my house, we had a bunch of plumbers. You know, Jesus was a swear word. So it took me a while just to be able to say his name without it being okay to say that. I mean, so, you know, we all have different things in our lives, different things that are baggage, thoughts, you know, ideas about what it means to have a relationship with God. And uh, we all have to understand, though, that sin is a condition uh, that we all experience uh, because of who we are, just a result of being human. David says, before I was formed in the womb, I had sin in me. You know, in the womb, children have sin in them because they're human. It's not just a behavioral condition. It's a condition of being, um, you know, human. And that separates us from God. The next passage in uh, Romans or Matthew, Jesus is talking to the disciples, and the disciples are asking him about, um, you know, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? You know, who are the disciples? Um, you know, are we, we're all in, right? So, having this big conversation about, you know, who's going to get to heaven when when Jesus returns. And uh, Jesus says, Look, there's going to be many of you that are going to call on me, and you're going to say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, Away from me, I did not know you. You know, um, depart from me, you cursed. Uh, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so there's going to be this reckoning when Christ returns that people that have a relationship with Christ have the assurance of spending eternity in heaven. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you have the opposite. You have the assurance of being separated from God from all eternity. And so even the disciples themselves were confused about what it meant to be You know, a Christ father, what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to be saved? And Jesus, even 2,000 years ago, was saying, look, there's a lot of people around you that think they're okay that really aren't because they're measuring themselves out to uh, cultural, to earthly standards. And so being a good person is not what God's looking for. You know, there's nothing that you can do um, to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to wipe that sin away. Um, It was interesting because I was was talking to uh, a guy a couple weeks ago and and uh, we were talking about the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for his sins. And, uh, and so that's where the offer of salvation comes from. And I said, but you can pay the penalty yourself if you'd like. And he said, you mean I can pay the penalty for my sin? I said, sure. And he said, well, how would I do that? And I said, well, you don't have to do anything. Um, you can pay the penalty for your sin. Um, would you like to know what the price tag is? And he said, yeah. I said, well, it's eternal separation from God. And so you can pay the penalty for your own sin. You're just not going to like the outcome. <laughs> You know, Jesus said that he came to seek and save that which was lost. Every person that doesn't have a relationship with Christ is important to him. You know, he left the 99 to go get the one. That was a song we just sang. Every single person is important to God. He loves everybody, but only those that have a relationship with his, his son does he give the right to be called their children. And so that salvation is an issue of separation and having that separation, having that gap closed up. In uh, Romans... In uh, chapter 3, it says this, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And that all is encompassing of the, all the human race. Every single one of us has sin, and every single one of us is separated from God's perfection. But the good news is this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus and so Jesus himself, through that death on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, and he closes that gap and he enables us to have a relationship um, with, his heavenly, with our Heavenly Father. And so our relationship with God has everything to do with who we are in Christ. Let's look at this next passage together. In Romans 10:9, it says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? You will be saved. And so salvation comes from understanding that Jesus Christ is the solution for that sin, for that inequity that separates us in God. A person comes to understand their need for a relationship with Christ. They confess with their mouth that he is Lord and they are saved. And so as you think about what it means to be saved, the real question is, is have you publicly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you have a relationship with him? And so salvation and being saved has everything to do with who you are in Christ. Now, the first time I heard that, um, I came to understand that. So they showed me that passage, and I thought, wow, it's that simple? Yeah, sure. Well, how do I do it? Well, you just pray. Ask Christ into your life. So I prayed. I made a faith commitment. Was it saying the words that saved me? No. You know, I'm is married, is, married. I'm wearing a wedding ring. If I take this off, am I still married? Well, sure. It's not that ring that saves me. It's not the words that save you. It's not the baptism that saves you. It's the believing in your heart and believing in your mind that Jesus is God, that he paid the penalty for your sins, and asking him into your life and making him Lord, that saves you. That's what salvation is. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you've never had an opportunity to, to, to pray, to ask in your life, if you've never had an opportunity to publicly confess uh, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that is the first step of becoming a Christ follower. And so on this next uh, slide, there's a couple of things I just want to uh, invite you to do. Let's go to the, go to the next slide. You know, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, um, I want to encourage you to, uh, to read um, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 was instrumental for me. Um, John's writing that and he said, hey, this is not just a book. Um, this is just not a collection of writings. Um, it's eyewitness testimony. It'd be like if you went home today and wrote a letter about what you heard here today um, and you wrote that down, you were here, right? You saw it, you heard it. Um, you know, you touched it. And so if you wrote down what you saw here this morning, that would be your testimony. Well, First John is John's testimony about what he saw. He said, hey, look, this Jesus guy, I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I walked with him. All these things I'm writing down for you so that you can also know what I know. So First John chapter 1 is a great book to try to, just to help you to have confidence that, that this is what is important. This is how we have a relationship with God. God speaks to us through his word. And so if you want to know more about the Bible, I love that you know, I encourage you to jump into a small group or get involved in a Bible study. This book will transform your life if you let it. So I would encourage you this morning to read through uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1. Uh, If you have uh, never had an opportunity to read through the book of John, uh, the book of John will explain to you who Jesus is, about his ministry, a glimpse of what the early uh, believers really looked like. And as you go into the book of Acts, it's what the early church looked like. And so I'd encourage you maybe to read through the book of John if you've never had an opportunity to do that. But this morning, I want to invite you to, uh, uh, to, uh, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you can't say with certainty this morning, hey, I'm saved, or I know I'm a Christ follower, I am a Christian, that is really uh, important. That's the most important decision you're going to make in this life is what you've done with Jesus Christ. I've talked with, uh, I've been talking with people for 20 years about this issue. And sometimes people get it. Sometimes they still have questions. I want to encourage you not to delay that decision. Because by not making that decision sooner, you're missing out on what God has for you. Because when you make that decision, God does change your life. You know, go back to that previous slide. In 2 Corinthians, you know, Paul's writing, he says, uh, he says this, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old is gone. It's passed away. Uh, behold, the new has come. And so you're in a series today. that's called change lives that are, that are important about wanting to change other lives. And so change lives, though, begins with who you are in Christ. And so it will change you. And so uh, this morning, I just want to encourage you that if you have not had an opportunity to do that, um, to make that your next step. I know Steve would love the opportunity to talk to you about that. Uh, you've got a uh, connections card on the inside of, of your bulletin today. In the place There's a little place that says, hey, uh, today I want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ. I want to commit my life to Christ. Um, that is the most important decision that you're going to make uh, in this life. I made the decision... Um, uh, over 20 years ago, it was 21 years, it was 1995, so it was 1996, and so it's been almost 22 years um, that I made that decision. And I can remember uh, right after making that decision, um, all the guys that I was going to the bar with after work, um, I, all of a sudden it felt kind of weird, you know, I had these friends at church, and so after work was always like, hey, come on, we're going to such and such. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, yeah, I don't know if I should be doing that. What do you mean you don't know you're doing that? Well, you know, I kind of joined this church. Oh, you wussy, what do you mean? Come on, let's go. And all of a sudden, I had all these friends that kept trying to pull me away from what God was doing. And I had made these new friends. Uh, I had this new faith. Um, I committed my life to Christ. I got baptized. Uh, baptism does not um, get you into heaven. But I tell you, there's something about publicly confessing your faith in Christ and getting baptized uh, that will just usher in Uh, The power of God. It's the first step of obedience. When you think about what does it mean to have Jesus as a Lord and Savior, uh, we know what it means to be saved. We just talked about that. But what is lordship? Lordship is about doing what this book tells you to do. It's about being obedient to God and his word. And and one of the things that believers do is they get baptized. There are no unbaptized Christians in scripture. Not one. When you're reading down through the Bible, people make faith commitments, they get baptized. Faith commitments, get baptized. You know, I got married uh, 33 years ago. We exchanged rings. It didn't make me married, but it's a symbol of a covenant relationship that I've entered into with my wife. And that's what baptism is. And there's something about the Holy Spirit that just unleashes his power in that first step of obedience. And so it really begins that, that new life uh, in Christ. And so for me, it was uh, over almost 22 years now. And um, I can remember having to try to explain uh, to my coworkers what had happened. Uh, you know, I the friends that worked, all of a sudden... Uh, you sure you don't want to go? I remember one time the the pressure, the peer pressure to go was so great. that I was like, okay, let's go. It was a business meeting. And so uh, so I ended up going to the business meeting. And uh, so they're all drinking. They're pounding down drinks. And so I'm over at the counter. I was like, can you give me a Diet Coke? And so uh, so I'm over there drinking my Diet Coke and I walk back to the table. And, and so I'm like on my third Diet Coke and the guy sitting next to me goes, well, you're really drinking a lot of those. What is that? And he drinks a drink of it and he goes, there's nothing in this. And I was like, well, it's Diet Coke. Why aren't you drinking, man? And so all of a sudden, I'm made to feel guilty because I'm not drinking, and and uh, I had you know it was just one of the things that God just kind of delivered me from. You know, sometimes I think we look for life change. You know, we want a better marriage. We want to overcome alcoholism. We want to overcome you know pornography. We've got these issues in our life, and we try to overcome them in our own strength. Well, you can't do it in your own strength. You can try to stop drinking on your own. I can't tell you how many times I tried to stop smoking. I smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, you know, smoking and drinking just kind of went together and we had been to the work and it was so, it was so stressful. I'd, I had a guy that, uh, I had responsibility for all of our Mexican operations. So there's like 6,000 employees and, and one day uh, uh, the, uh, they had blocked the border off and all the operations shut down and, and everybody's looking at me, what are we going to do? I was like, oh, let's go get a smoke. <laughs> I mean, that was like my default. You know, it was just, I would succumb to that pressure. And every time I tried to stop smoking, I just, I couldn't do it on my own strength. But you know what was interesting? The second I made a faith commitment, it just went away. I mean, my relationship with Christ changed such that I no longer had to work at these things. They were just a byproduct of who I was in Christ. And so God changed my life. Um, I started working on my marriage. Uh, My kids um, uh, just saw a change in me. My oldest saw a change in me. The other ones were young, so they really didn't see that much of a change. It was funny because I can remember um, the first time that uh, I tried to explain somebody, to my faith to somebody. They were all kind of looking at me like, well, you have no idea what you're talking about. I, I ended up at Trinity uh, Seminary down in Deerfield. Um, it's, uh, uh, I found out the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew. I grew up thinking it was Latin. I had the Latin mass, Latin, Latin, Latin. And, and so uh, I walked in. I said, well, which one's closest to the original Latin? And he said, well, it's written in Greek and Hebrew. Said, really? And so uh, I ended up down at Trinity because I knew absolutely nothing about Scripture. And uh, my eyes were this big. I mean, I found out this book is so amazing. It is so amazing. It is life-transforming. It's fun to read. It's fun to study. And so I fell in love with the languages. Um, Church history is fascinating. Uh, You'll forget everything that anybody ever told you about church history. Uh, If you want to know about church history, there's some great Christian resources uh, you can pick up that really talks about what church history is. I grew up, uh, I was going to be a priest, Catholic. I found out about the whole Reformation. When you look back through church history, you're thinking, why doesn't everybody know this? <laughs> I mean, it was just fascinating. Come through church history, and uh, I did not go to seminary to become a pastor. I went to seminary because I had a witness outside my door. Um, my friend, the plant manager at Riverside, was a, an elder in the Mormon Church. I had friends that were Baha'is, Buddhist. You know, I you name a world religion. I've got tons of friends in it, and I could not defend my faith. And so I went to Trinity so I could better understand Christianity and how to engage in conversation with people. And the next thing you know. Um, I'm thinking, hey, mission sounds like fun. And so uh, I was thinking missionary, maybe going to Malaysia. And I met uh, Gary Rohrmeyer, who is now our district uh, director. Uh, he's our, he was our district director of church planting. Now he's the president of our conference. He had just started as church planting director. And he said, have you ever thought about church planting as a domestic mission? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, um, there's 3,500 churches that are going to close their doors this year. You know, there's 1,500 churches that are going to open up. Every time a new church is started, hey, we celebrate new churches but for every church that starts up to fail. He said, you know, this country is in decline when it comes to our influence as a church. Um, we are not seeing people come to faith in Christ. Um, every county, you're in McHenry County, um, Lake County is right over there. Um, you've got DeKalb, you've got all these different counties. Of All the counties in the United States, not one county in the United States has seen even a 1% increase in church attendance in the last 10 years. We are moving people from church to church. And so people that come to church, you know, I always celebrate when somebody moves into our community, especially if they're a mature leader and believer. Like, ooh, we got another leader. But you know what? We're moving people between churches. What we're not doing is reaching people for Christ. The Muslims are doing it and the Jehovah's Witnesses are doing it. Everybody else is doing it. But within the realm of Christianity, we are losing our influence because we are not talking about who Christ is. We're talking about God and we're talking about church, but we're not talking about Jesus. And when I came to faith in Christ, the first thing I understood was, wow, I did not know one believer apart from the guys that I had met at church. I did not know one. I'd been a Baxter for 15 years. I'd been all over the world. Everybody I knew was making fun of me for making a faith commitment. Some guy thought I joined a cult. You got baptized, dude. You're drinking Kool-Aid? You know, my poor mom was crying because I left the Catholic church. I was like, nobody, not one person encouraged me in my faith. Not one, except for the people I had met at church. And me talking about feeling like a weirdo. You know it was funny because I realized how many people I knew did not have a relationship with Christ. And the other thing that happened was I realized how many churches aren't doing anything about it. I mean, why is this issue not the heartbeat of the church in our culture? Why are we not talking about how to reach our communities for Christ? There's nothing else more important that we should be doing as the church. And so the more and more I got involved in ministry, the more I started thinking about missions the more I realized, hey, I've been going to church on and off. Nobody had, how, could, how could I be 33 years old? Nobody had ever told me about my need for a relationship with Christ. How does that happen? I mean, really, I just don't understand how that happens. And then I realized there's not a lot of churches that are doing anything about that. And so I, you know, met Gary. I was in a converged church. And one of the things I love about our conference, our conference is about reaching people for Christ. It's about reaching our communities for Christ and for building up the local churches. We're ascending, we're ascending missions movement. I fell in love with the mission of the church. I fell in love with church planting. And so uh, I went in to my wife one day and I said, hey, uh, um, we, had a, we had a nice nice house and uh, full basement, three stories, almost 4,000 square feet. And uh, I was making good money and I was, you know, big bonuses and it was all right, man. It was just, it was all going the way. I said, hey, uh, I'm thinking about quitting my job. So, what do you mean you think about quitting your job? I said, well, I've been praying about this, uh, this Isaiah, you know, here I am, send me thing. And I, I think God's calling me into ministry. And she's like, into the ministry? They said, yeah, you know. She said, well, where are you going to work? I said, well, I'm thinking about being a church planter. I'm going to go out to churches. And she said, well, where are you going to work? <laughs> I said, well, that's going to be my ministry. And she said, well, how are you going to get paid? And I said, well, here's the best part. We have to raise support. <laughs> How you provide for our family and i said well god's gonna provide she thought about that for a second how are you going to provide for our family <laughs> and so i tell you one of the most scary things we ever did was i quit my job and uh we started raising financial support and uh we we had to uh i did an, an internship at northbridge church we helped mark albrecht plant northbridge church up in antioch and then uh, we were there for we came out to plant meadowland church and um, I put together a plan. I had my salary, insurance. I had to eat. I had to have a house. Um, We had a barn. We had to rent. We were paying over here, and so I looked at our budget for the next, you know, three years. I said, okay, if this church was going to get started, we have to raise $400,000. We'd raise $400,000. We'll get this church off the ground. It becomes self-supporting, and uh, so, um, you know, my wife and I, this next slide's got a picture of my family on it. This is uh, when we when we let it, went out to a plant church. And this passage kind of undergirded us when we moved out to Spring Grove. We moved out to Spring Grove. Uh, we did not know one person. We had, uh, we moved out here. You know, God kind of opened up some doors. We were driving around McHenry, Johnsburg, and Spring Grove and, and uh, ended up, God just provided us a house in Spring Grove. It's a great story on how God provided the house. But I remember telling my wife, I was like, well, look, Abraham, uh, who is then Abram in Genesis chapter 12, God said, you know, go to the land that I will show you. The Lord said to Abram, "Go from this country to the land that I will show you. Leave your father's house, leave everything behind. But don't worry about it. I'm going to show you where you need to go." And so Abraham left, not going. That's kind of what was our family's verse. You know, we just kind of left, not going. We were going. We were staying with friends over the summer. And, oh man, it was a nightmare. Uh, we had about six, nine months. In fact, when we first started, we got into the house. The walls were torn out. It was filled with mold. The sheet rock was all torn down and the carpet was all pulled up. People were in plywood and I was inviting people over to, hey, come on over. I want to tell you a little bit about Middleland." And they were walking in and they were going, you're the pastor? And so I was like, yeah, God's going to provide though. Just trust me. <laughs> so I sent this support raising letter out for $400,000 and uh, mailed it out to, you know, two of my closest friends. And uh, I can remember my first support letter came back and it was from my aunt. And uh, she said, uh, Hey, I'm going to give you $5 a month for the next two years. I'm thinking, $5 a month? $400,000? Hmm. That felt a little short. <laughs> I can remember just praying because I didn't know how God was going to provide for us. And, uh, and I can remember, though, what she said at the bottom of the letter. She said, you know what? She said um, she was 80 years old. She didn't have many more years to live, but she said, you know what? I'm going to pray for you every day. And so that, 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 that letter, that support letter, um, I still have that. I still have that in my uh, drawer. Um, my aunt's gone to be with the Lord. But one of the things that I learned early on in ministry was prayer is the foundation of the church. You know, this is Jesus's church. It's not Richard's church. It's not Steve's. Christ is the foundation for all that we do and say and teach in our churches. And prayer is such an important part of who we are. And so I was saying God's faithfulness, you know, we moved out here and uh, we moved out here in 2001. We spent the first two years meeting people. And uh, it was so nice to me to see some of these faces. Some of these people It was amazing the way God started to orchestrate Um, you know, just the startup of a church. And uh, we had uh, a contract with the Johnsburg High School. And we had our first public worship service in March of 2003. And we had 150 people come out. We had eight core families that were part of that team. And uh, God just has just done an amazing thing uh, in our lives and through our church. But it was all because of, you know, what he wanted to accomplish in us. You know, in uh, in John chapter uh, 17, um, Jesus is praying uh, for the disciples. He says this in John 17. He prays for the Christians. He prays for the believers. He prays for you. If you have a relationship with Christ, Jesus prayed for you 2,000 years ago. He said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. This is what we know to be true. This is Now we're sanctified. When we read this, it changes us. You know, it begins with a new, we're new in Christ. It changes who we are. And uh, it, sancti- it sanctifies us. Sanctification is the process of growing to be more like who Christ is. And Jesus prays for us that we would grow in our faith in him. His word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified. Our responsibility as believers is out there. You know, we come here together to encourage one another, praise and to worship and to hear his word proclaimed. But our responsibility, our role is out there. Jesus said, go make disciples. Discipleship happens out there. It begins with sharing with people. What you have in Christ, you know. Sanctification is the process whereby we become more Christ-like. Jesus prays for the disciples; he prays for us that we are growing our faith. But I love this next verse in verse 20. He would he also prays for those that will believe in him through the believers. And so Jesus prays for people that do not yet know who Jesus Christ is. And so if you don't have a relationship with Christ, as you get drawn into a relationship with him, it's a result of this prayer. You know, the Holy Spirit is external in the life of a non-believer. When a person asks Christ into the life, the Holy Spirit indwells and comes inside and takes up residence in us. We become new, we're changed, and we have the Holy Spirit in us. He's no longer external, he's internal. And so we have the responsibility now to go out and to share with people our testimonies. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a believer, if you've made a faith commitment, you have a story. And as you go out into the world, to share that, people are going to come to believe in Christ through your testimony. That's a result of Jesus's prayer too. He doesn't just pray for the church so that it would be strengthened. He prays for everyone that doesn't have a relationship with Christ, that they would come to know him through him. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you, if you have a relationship with Christ, you know, make this, uh, make this your prayer. God, use me out there. On this next slide, I've got a couple of things that you might want to think about. If you've never had an opportunity to write out your faith story, then that would be a great first step for you. Could you click that? Click that one for me. If you've never written out your faith story, I want to encourage you to do that because every one of us has a story. I love telling my story. I love listening to other people's story. If you are a believer, you have a faith story, and I want to encourage you. Um, if you don't have some place where you've written that out, um, to do that. You know, if you need some help writing out your faith story, I'm sure Steve, or one of the team, would love to help you do that. Um, but every one of us, if we're believers, have a faith story. And I've, you know, I've been in ministry now for 20 over 20 years. I have never heard the same story twice. Every story is different. They're not all dramatic. You know, you look at Timothy, as you read through First and Second Timothy, Timothy grew up, his, his mom was a Christian, his grandma was a Christian, he just didn't know any different. He just grew up in a Christian household, and God used him in amazing ways. And then you have the Apostle Paul, who in, in, in Acts chapter 9 was persecuting and killing Christians, that, that he, he, gets, he gets converted, he comes into a relationship with Christ, and he, now he, he's written a big chunk of our New Testament. And so everybody's got a different story. They're not all dramatic, they're all different, but every one of them is miraculous and powerful. And if you've never written out your story, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. If you don't have a routine of Bible-taking prayer, um, that is vitally important. You know, I was talking to a guy who stopped at Starbucks. I was so excited about coming here this morning. I got here too early. And so I was down at Starbucks, and I was talking to a guy, and he was talking to me about, you know, we were talking about what we were doing. He'd heard of Meadowland. He knew Tim over at the orchard. And so he said, Yeah, I'm getting to meet with somebody, and, you know, we prayed. And he was talking about prayer. And so I asked him, I said, Well, what are you reading? He said, What do you mean, read? And I said, Well, what do you read? Do you read the Bible at all? He goes, Oh, we just pray, and we talk about what we're learning. I said, well, how do you learn anything without reading? He goes, well, we don't don't need to read that, do we? He said, we just kind of talk to each other. I was like, well, yeah, you need to read this. How do you know what to believe? I've got an opinion. You've got an opinion. We've all got opinions. If you want to know what's true, it's in here. And so, if you don't have a routine of Bible intake and prayer, that is essential. God speaks to you and changes you, transforms you, you know, through his word. You know, Bible intake and prayer, when we're reading scripture, that's God speaking to us. And when we pray, that's us talking to God. Our relationship with God will grow as we talk and we listen to him through Bible intake and prayer. And I just also want to encourage you to make a commitment to what God's doing in the local body of Christ. You know, this is a visible, a tangible reflection of what it means to be a part of who Christ is. You know, the church is the body of Christ. So many times people, and they say, well, hey, what have you got for me? And my favorite question is, that's an interesting question. What have you got for us? What do you mean? I said, well, do you know you have a spiritual gift and you have to use your spiritual gifts to serve and to build up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith? Do you know your spiritual gift? I thought you were just, gonna do what do you have for me? I was like, a yeah, spiritual gifts class, go get in it. <laughs> Every one of us has a spiritual gift for the purpose of serving and building up and strengthening this body of Christ so that we can be a tangible witness to people in our community. And so if you don't have a, a church home or if you haven't found a place to serve, this is a great church to serve in. This church is standing right here today. We're here today because of all those that came in at the very beginning and said, I want to be a part of what God wants to do in this church. And they committed to serve and to give and to be a part of what he wanted to accomplish. So the body of Christ is built up as each one of us does its own part. Steve's responsibility, and my responsibility is to equip saints for ministry. And so if you don't have a spiritual gift and you're trying to figure out what to uh, where, where you need to start, go talk to Steve. Steve, you've got a lot to do, man. <laughs> but this is a great church. I think one of the things that's exciting for me is just to know that the foundation was laid you know, based on who we are in Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, um, it says this. We're to be witnesses. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be witnesses uh, to the very end of the age. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. You know, this is your Jerusalem. Johnsburg is your Jerusalem. Your neighborhood is your Jerusalem. And then when you think about Judea, you can go down into McHenry. You can go down into, you can go down into other parts of Illinois. You've got Samaria. You know, Samaria is maybe our nation, you know, the United States. We're part of Converge Worldwide. It's, you know, we have a, we're part of a district of churches. There's 225 churches in our district in this area. We've got over almost 1,500 churches in the United States. And so that's our Samaria, into the very ends of the earth. We're a global conference of churches. We started 20,000 churches in India uh, in the past five years, 20,000 churches. Now they're not, they're all about 50, you know, it looks completely different when you get into third world countries, but every one of those churches has a pastor You have people that serve. You have people that are building up their body of Christ. We're a global conference of churches. And every one of us has an opportunity to be a part of that. You're a part of that as you serve. um, We just had a missions team came back from uh, Haiti. You know that was you being witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And if uh, you can't go to Haiti, then maybe you can take up a food collection and be a part of helping in the food pantry. Every one of us has a role to play in what God um, wants to do in us together. And it's exciting for me just to be able to come back and to see what God's continuing to do. Oh, um, can you go back to the very first slide that's got the title of our series on it? Go back to slide one. Changed lives, living to see lives changed. Now, that's what that's our that's our prayer. That's what Steve's talking about. That's what this series is all about. Changed lives begins with you, and what Christ has done in your life. That's what a changed life is. And now we live to see other lives changed. You know that's Jesus' prayer in John 17. You know, we want to see people that are sanctified and grown up in their faith, and then we want to see other people that are going to come to faith in Christ through us. Changed lives, living to see lives changed. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. That's really good. And so that's my prayer for, for uh, this church, that it would continue to see lives changed so that this community could be impacted for Christ. I want to thank Steve for, for having me up here. It has been so exciting. Um, I'm not really Facebook. I get in there every once in a while. Um, I've got four kids. I've got one of them that's up in uh, Milwaukee, leading worship. Um, at her church. I've got another one that's over at a worship conference thing in California. Uh, my wife couldn't step away from children's ministry, so they sent me up here by myself. But, you know, it was interesting because I look back at what Christ did in my life and sometimes I shudder to think what it would have been like if I had still had an alcohol problem or if I, had, if I had gotten a divorce. I'd probably be on my third marriage by now. I look at some of the friends that I used to go out with, they're all in their second and third marriages. And so I look back at what God had done in my life and now I look at the legacy that I'm leaving my kids And I just pray that this church will continue to leave a legacy on this community. And so that's my prayer for you. I want to thank you for having me up here this morning. And let me close in prayer and I think Steve's going to come up. Hey, Father, I just want to thank you for this uh, day you've giving us today. And uh, God, I just thank you, uh, God, that you're living and active, It's able to to change us, that the old is gone, the new has come. And I just thank you for life change. I thank you for the great work that you're doing in and through this body of Christ. Thank you for Steve and for his leadership. And I thank you for those that just faithfully serve and give and are a part of what God's doing here. God, I want to lift Meadowland Church up to you. God, I know that there's a lot of hours been on knees for this church. And so God, we just want to continue to pray that your will would be done in our lives individually and collectively as the body of Christ. I look forward to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.